The reading this morning is from Hebrews chapter 11. And in the Church Bibles, it's on page 1209, Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he's dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children, because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born 
because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more can I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who, through faith, conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and rooted foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Good morning. Wonderful to see you all. Um, I wonder where things stand with you uh, at the moment and how you feel your Christian life, if you are a Christian, how you feel that's going. For some of us, this morning as we've walked into church, we've done so feeling like hypocrites, having not really thought about God uh, since uh, we left church at the end of the service last Sunday. We struggle with living two lives almost, our church life and then our life outside of church, our life at work, our life on the sports field, our life at the pub, in the club, our time with friends. We find it hard to put those two things together. Perhaps... You come with a great sense of failure because uh, we talk much of prayer and you struggle to pray. Maybe you come to the prayer meeting even, but on your own, when you're at home, 
to find the time to pray, to find the energy to pray just seems too much. Perhaps there's a particular sin in your life, a a way in which you know you're disobeying God uh, and uh, you don't really know how to change that. In fact, if you're completely honest, maybe you don't want to change it. Perhaps you're struggling with doubt. Perhaps you're struggling even with not being sure if you believe at all. And of course, in a group this size, there will be those of us who are here this morning who, well, we know we don't believe. We value the, 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 the warmth of welcome, the community uh, of coming to church, but it all seems unreal, impossible to swallow, something for other people, strange people maybe, to believe. Well, if any of those people is you, and indeed, if you're any person, and I believe there is enormous power in this passage that we've just heard from the book of Hebrews, an enormous power to bring change in your life that you probably can't imagine. And what drives that power? Where do you access that power? How does that transformation come? Look down with me at verse 1. On page 1209 of the Church Bibles, if you don't have it open, it would be really helpful if we can look at it together. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Uh, The phrase by faith then appears in the passage 21 times. Many of the great heroes and heroines of the Old Testament and the things that they did are described in in sort of summary form uh, in this passage. But each one, we're told, did it by faith. There were people who submitted themselves to being sawn in two by faith. Abraham left his comforts and and luxuries of life in his home city right at the heart of the beginning of civilization and went and lived in tents for the rest of his life. Moses' parents hid him from Pharaoh even though they knew that if he was found their lives would be lost. Moses himself left Egypt, we read, not fearing the king's anger. The people walked through a sea on dry ground, even though that was an incredibly dangerous thing to do. The Egyptians tried it and they all drowned. And all of it is by faith. What do you think of when you think of faith? What is faith? What does it mean? Uh, My first degree was in biochemistry, Uh, and um, certainly not everyone, uh, but uh, perhaps the majority of people in the department would have taken a definition of faith rather like that that you would read from Richard Dawkins. Uh, Richard Dawkins says, faith is belief without evidence, and science is belief with evidence. So that faith is a sort of irrational thing. 
that doesn't make any sense, that has no reason to it. Rational people, thinking people, trust science, not mumbo-jumbo. Not belief in things that can't be tested, can't be seen. And when we read verse 1, it sounds a bit like that, doesn't it? Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Then look down at verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, we believe that everything that is, everything that can be seen, everything that can be touched, everything that can be felt or heard, exists because God made it out of nothing. Now, that is something that is only possible to to know, to believe, by faith, because there was nothing before. God made everything out of nothing. You can't go back and run an experiment on that. No one was there to see it, by definition. What was made was not made out of what is visible. So is Richard Dawkins right? Is faith belief without evidence? Is faith basically irrational? Well, I want to say no. But I want us to understand that everybody lives, in one sense, everybody lives by faith. So there in my degree course, in the third year, my mind was absolutely swimming with the things I was learning in studying biochemistry. And by the sheer beauty of creation, And I don't think, most of us probably don't even begin to have a clue or be able to scratch the surface of just how extraordinary and beautiful our bodies are. The incredible things that we can do. I mean, kind of, I guess we're aware of them. Uh, We see tiny little babies uh, in uh, church sometimes, don't we? We've got a few here today. And those tiny babies, simply by taking in a sort of white, opaque liquid can turn that into muscle and fat and bone and nerves and organs that are capable of processing that food, hearts that are capable of pumping oxygen around the blood, lungs that are capable of uh, exchanging uh, the the sort of waste products of uh, respiration and taking in fresh oxygen uh, and and then giving that to our blood, which is perfectly designed to to carry that oxygen around our bodies so that we can live. Uh, And that blood also carrying uh, built-in incredibly, uh, incredibly complex defenses against uh, bacteria and viruses and, and other toxins. Our livers and kidneys capable of processing what we eat. And, and, and that milk turns into big human beings through these incredible processes that go on inside us. And my degree was looking at the sort of, you know, really microscopic detail of that. And the thing I got really interested in was DNA and proteins. 
Uh, and much of what DNA does in our bodies is encodes for uh, different proteins that the machinery of our cells is able to, to create from the food that we eat. Uh, and the codes uh, for proteins, they uh, basically code for a long string uh, of molecules called amino acids. Uh, and those strings then fold up in very intricate ways to make things like enzymes. And in my third year, I attended a lecture on the evolution of catalytic power. Now, that might sound like a really weird thing, uh, but it was really exciting. Our um, professor explained how th the way these very tightly and, 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 and intricately folded proteins, uh, the structure of them uh, in uh, things that we call enzymes which enable the processes of biology to take place in our bodies. These proteins are folded in such a way that there's a, there's a site on them where there's something incredible that happens. So either two molecules uh, will come together and then because of the way they bind to that protein, uh, they will become one molecule, they're fused, or, or, or they'll be broken apart by binding to that molecule. Uh, and so the initial state that those molecules are in uh, and the final state, uh, the binding power of the enzyme has to be so closely balanced that it favours the reaction to go in the way the body wants to go it. It's to go. Sorry. And it is breathtaking when you see it. It's unbelievable. And with shining eyes... My professor of molecular biology looked us in the class in the eye and he said, it's beautiful, isn't it? He said, nature is perched on the cusp of perfection. And then, I think involuntarily, he said, it makes you want to believe in a creator God, doesn't it? And then he said, but I don't. I believe in evolution. Now, as he looks at nature as he looks at the world, as he looks at the intricate processes of cells, what does he see? Beauty and design. But by faith, he believes that that has come about entirely, entirely by random chance. By elements just banging into each other randomly for long enough that they built that and all the countless other processes and structures of the human body and of the world and of the universe. The world is so finely balanced for life. And the tolerances are so unimaginably fine. And yet here we are. By faith, you can either believe, you can either have the faith to say, well, it just happened. Or you can believe that God did it. That God made us. On my last day, the day of my graduation, there was a champagne reception on the top floor of the biochemistry building. Uh, and talking to a different professor, 
He asked me what I was going to do next. The department had recommended me uh, to a biotech firm who uh, were looking for, for graduates in the area. Uh, and he asked if I was going to take the job. And I said, no, I'm going to go and do um, unpaid work with Christian unions uh, around the West Midlands. And with a look of some pity on his face, he said, haven't we taught you anything? I said, yeah, you have. You've taught me a lot. But it has only strengthened my faith. But right at the beginning of faith, right at the very heart of it, is trust in God. If you have faith to believe that there's no God, well, fair enough. I think many people don't have quite that sort of certainty, and they'll say, well, I'm, I'm agnostic. Maybe that's you. I'm, I'm not sure if there's a God. I don't know. We can't know. There's not enough evidence. It takes a lot of faith to live like that, doesn't it? To assume that, well, I, I don't know that there's a God, but I guess if, if there is one, I'll probably be fine with him in the end. If there's even a chance that there's a God, you want to know, don't you? If there's a chance that there's a life beyond this one, if there's a chance that this is not chaos, that our lives, as we feel them so deeply to be, really do have meaning. And that that meaning doesn't end with the end of your life. If there's even a chance that that's true, it takes a lot of faith to say, I'm not going to bother finding out. It's too hard. I'll just take a punt that that God will welcome me anyway into his heaven. So everyone lives by faith. And it's true, isn't it, that my professor was being confident in and assured about things he could not see. No one was there to witness whether life began by accident or by design. All of us, in the end, have assurance about those things that we don't see. But it's not just that, that faith is choosing to jump one way, not the other. Faith, in the Christian sense, is believing that the God who has revealed himself in the scriptures and most significantly through the person of his son, Jesus Christ, who lived and died and rose from the grave and ascended to heaven and is now seated there in majesty and power, has made himself known. So verse 6, we, get a, we shouldn't just take verse 1 as a definition of what faith is. Because look at verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe two things. That he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So not only faith isn't just belief in God, but it's belief in something about God, his character that God can be trusted, that God rewards those who earnestly seek him. And as we read through the passage, it becomes clear that God keeps promises that he makes. He never fails. You can trust him. 
And so we read about Noah, for instance, verse 7. When warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. Now, in our imagination, we think about Noah as someone um, almost sort of superhuman in some way, a great hero. But Noah was an ordinary man, an ordinary person, just like us. And what Noah did with his life, he spent years devoted simply to building a boat on dry land. It seemed like insanity, didn't it, to the people around him. It made no sense. Noah, why are you building this enormous vessel? Far from the sea, here in the dust. But Noah built his ark by faith, in holy fear. He, he trusted God, he believed God, both that he was there and that God would do what he said he would do. God says to Noah, I'm going to send a flood, build a boat. And so, one painstaking day after another, one plank of wood at a time, one nail at a time, one sort of basket of pitch at a time, he built this wooden boat considerably bigger than the building we're sitting in. We sang, didn't we, at the beginning? Noah built the most enormous boat, which kept the birds and the animals afloat. But God kept his promise, so by faith Noah condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that's in keeping with faith. When God spoke, Noah believed him. Same with Abraham, verse 8. By faith Abraham, when he was called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, in Baden went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents. A prosperous man in the most prosperous city on earth, Ur of the Chaldees, right at the, right at the very center of the beginnings of human civilization. He left civilization behind to go and live as a nomad in a land he had never been to, even though he did not know where he was going. Why? By faith, God called him to do it. But faith, in that sense, is not unreasoning, is it? Let's just look at Sarah, verse 11. By faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. She considered. Uh, look at um, uh, verse uh, 19. When Abraham's called to go and sacrifice his son uh, Isaac. One of the most extraordinary episodes in the Bible and, and shocking in, in lots of ways. Told to take his son, the God, son God had promised him uh, and sacrifice him. But because it's God saying so, Abraham, verse 19, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. Uh, and so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. You see, faith is not irrational. Sarah considered, Abraham reasoned. Moses' parents saw, verse 23, that he was no ordinary child. They could see that God was going to do something extraordinary through him. 
Verse 26, Moses regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. It's all rational. It's all reasoned. It's all thoughtful. These are not unthinking people. These are people who act with reason on the basis of what they know. There is a God. He made this world. And he keeps his promises. This is a God who is more powerful than death. And there is no treasure on earth worth comparing to him, to the promises that he makes. Because he promised Abraham not only that he would give him many descendants and a home, but that he would bless him and make him a blessing to the whole world. And that is his promise to all his children. That is his promise to us. Uh, And so we keep seeing that they were looking forward uh, to something uh, greater than anything this world in its current form has to offer. Verse 10, he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Verse 16, these people uh, were were looking for a country of their own. Verse 16, instead they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore God's not ashamed to be called their God. He's prepared a city for them. Verse 35, women received back back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. If I'm going to talk about our imaginations now, and I don't want us to get confused by what I mean by that. I'm not suggesting that we imagine God in the sense that we kind of bring him into being by thinking about him. Uh, or that Christian faith is imaginary, but Christian faith shapes your imagination, shapes the basic map of reality that you hold in your mind and your heart. That's what I mean when I talk about uh, imagination. It's the sort of shape of reality that, that actually is the picture in your head. How you think about the world, how you think about reality. And faith shapes your imagination. And how do these people imagine the world? How do they think about the world? What is the map of reality that they inhabit? God is at the center of it. He made it all. God is active within it. God is active beyond it and has made promises that that will last longer than this world will last. And that is the star by which they navigate. That is the map by which they find their way through life. God is there. He is real. He rewards those who earnestly seek him. And can you see how that, if that's really the sort of map of the interior of your mind, do you see how that changes the way you see the world? That, for instance, was the roadmap that led James Hannington to Uganda, leaving a life of privilege and luxury in Brighton, one of the richest families in Sussex. He went to Uganda knowing that it was likely he would die. And he did die. And as he died, what did he say? Did he say, oh my goodness, what a wasted gamble, what a mistake, I've lost everything. Uh, No. 
He said, tell Moanza, I've bought the road to Uganda with my blood. I've done what I came to do. He died happy, knowing that he had faithfully served the God who called him. I don't know if you've read this book, The Hiding Place, written by an extraordinary woman called Corrie ten Boom. Uh, She and her families hid Jews from the Nazis in occupied Holland uh, during the Second World War. And in the end, they were rounded up. Uh, Someone informed on them. They were rounded up by the Gestapo. Uh, Her father died before they could reach a concentration camp. She and her sister uh, Betsy were imprisoned in Ravensbrück concentration camp where her sister Betsy died. They were willing to suffer all of that because they believed they were doing the right thing by sheltering uh, Jews from their persecutors. Uh, And there's a comment early in the book that really helps me to understand why they did that, why they had that courage, why they were willing uh, to go through all that they went through. It's just after the occupation began, as the Jews are beginning to be rounded up. One day, as Father and I were returning from our walk, we found the Gottmarkt cordoned off by a double ring of police and soldiers. A truck was parked in front of the fish market. Into the back were climbing men, women, and children, all wearing the yellow star. There was no reason we could see why this particular place at this particular time had been chosen. Father, those poor people, I cried. The police line opened, the truck moved through. We watched till it turned the corner. Those poor people, Father echoed. But to my surprise, he was looking at the soldiers now forming into ranks to march away. I pity the poor Germans, Corrie. They have touched the apple of God's eye, which is how God describes his chosen people, the Jews, in the Old Testament. He pitied the Germans. He pitied the ones in power. He pitied the ones, pitied the ones holding the guns, walking in jackboots, rounding up the powerless, mercilessly sending them off to slaughter. He pitied them. Why did he pity them? Because the map of the world in his imagination, the map of the world that he had learned to live in, was that there is nothing worse than coming up against God as your enemy. And here people born to the chosen people of Israel were being carted off in a lorry by soldiers. And in his mind, that was a worse day for the soldiers than it was for their victims. Now, I don't know what you make of that, but you can see, can't you, why he was willing to do what he did. Because he believed that God exists and rewards those who earnestly seek him. He believed that God keeps his promises, that he will never fail, that he really can be trusted. That's what faith is, friends. And that is the faith that will transform your prayerlessness. Lots of people say, I... I struggle to pray because I'm not disciplined. Well, look, discipline can help, but discipline isn't actually really the problem. If I don't pray, 
It's because my map of the world doesn't have God at the center of it, where, where I think, you know, there is no situation, no problem that I face in my life that God can't fix better than I can. That's why in our strategic plan, uh, every single uh, heading begins prayer before action. We really need to learn to believe as a church that God can fix our problems better than we can. And if I don't pray, or if I rarely pray, in the end, the problem's not with my discipline, not fundamentally. The problem's with my faith. God is not at the heart of that map that is my imagination. I often live as if he were not there. Because not to pray is to live like an atheist, isn't it? If I'm struggling with living two lives, it's because that map in my imagination uh, is not telling me the truth about reality. Uh, I'm living as though there's a part of my life in which God's not there. He doesn't matter. If I'm struggling with sin, in the end, the thing that will really break its power is knowing the goodness and mercy of God. That to serve him is perfect freedom. That to live his way is the best way. And we could go on. But do you see? The thing that will transform your life, the thing that will give you courage like Corrie ten Boom, like Noah, like Abraham, like Moses, like David, Samson, Jephthah, Samuel and the prophets, all of these people that we see in this, they're not commended for being strong people, for being superhuman people, for being wonderful people. They're commended simply because they had faith that God really is there and he really does keep his promises. They were weak people, read that in verse 34, don't we? Whose weakness was turned to strength. What can turn my weakness to strength? For I am a weak man. What can turn your weakness to strength? If God will grow our faith, will teach us to reshape our imaginations so that he is at the center. Let's bow our heads and pray. We need his help. Gracious Father, you know our weakness, you know the weakness of our hearts, you know the weakness of our imaginations. And so often we we allow ourselves to think without putting you at the center of our thoughts, without our world being shaped by who you are, by what you have done and what you can do. Gracious Father, in your mercy, by your Holy Spirit, please grow our faith. Please help us, like Moses did, to see him who is invisible, to know the reality of Jesus at work in our lives, to know the certainty of the promises he's made about a future resurrection, about a city that will truly be our home, where we can rest. Oh, Lord, have mercy on us. Grant us faith like those we've read about. Faith like James Hannington, like Corrie ten Boom, like many other who, uh, who we remember for their faith. Lord, may we be such as them, we pray. Only through your mercy and by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.